This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me. This is your financial podcast where we explore the markets, investable ideas and themes, and of course, chat to industry experts to help you manage your wealth and money in the markets. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we have another special guest joining us on Talk Money to Me. Our guest today is Joshua Derrington. He's the Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of Alvia Asset Partners, which is a family office investment manager. That's right. So we are really excited to have him on the show today as he has extensive experience in the investment management space and also has involvement in several active and successful business ventures in the health and education sectors, plus a lot more, which he's going to delve into. Yeah, and I think what's quite different to this family office to other family offices is Alvia actually has a family office fund. And there's some key stats that I wanted to share with you as Joshua will go into the fund in a bit more detail. However, their three-year trailing returns placed them in the fifth highest percentile rating out of 114 competitors in the Morningstar multi-sector aggressive category. And the annualized return since inception is 14. 13.30%. That is double digits. Yeah, very, very impressive returns. So we can't wait to delve into exactly what the returns are made of and what he's looking out for in the future. Now, before we do that, a quick reminder, guys, our chat today is not considered personal advice, even though we are registered financial advisors at Shore and Partners. As always, you know the drill. We don't know who you are and your personal circumstances, so you can't take this as personal advice, and it's also not a financial product. And it's important to remember that everything discussed is based on facts known at the time of recording, which is the 17th of October, 2023. All right, now that the disclaimer is done, welcome Joshua to Talk Money to Me. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having us, guys. So Josh, can you provide us with a bit of background on how Alvia Asset Partners came about and your background? We're particularly interested in your successful business ventures in the health and education sector. Um, it's, a, it's a long story um, and it's, it can be told in many different ways. But I think in short, I, I worked in, in some of the large institutions in the investment side. I never quite gelled with that environment. I was always intrigued by just business in general. My wife and I both came from sort of entrepreneurial families. So there was always a drive to sort of get out there and prove, prove ourselves. But I think somewhat fortuitously, I met some, the founders of a firm called DNR Capital many years ago. They probably appreciated that I wasn't enjoying the institutional life and they brought me into their business to run what was a, a small part of their business at that point in time, managing money for direct families and a lot of them were family offices and that sort of led us on the journey of investing in, in private businesses but also combining that with listed in businesses as well. We met one of the clients, one of their clients, 
Um, I got to know the family very well. They were looking to retire. They had a very successful business. I knew the business intimately um, and they actually approached me to see if I would be interested in buying the business myself and taking it on and continuing the legacy. And that's where it all sort of got started. Um, That gave us the capital. Um, When we eventually sold that business, to think with a true sort of blank sheet of paper as to how I wanted to manage money. And I was always intrigued by how family offices did it. I was also intrigued by the endowment model overseas and the ability to think with a blank sheet of paper as to who do I want to work with, how do we want to invest. That's where Elvia Asset Partners came about. Okay, great. And so what was the business venture in the healthcare sector? that you, I guess, bought or started? Yeah, so um, that original business was an, an education business in the, in the mental health sector. Um, but I also, I founded a business in the healthcare sector. It's, it's called PIA. It's an emergency department operator. Now, I know absolutely nothing about running emergency departments, or I, I didn't at the time, but I certainly had appreciation for a need having spent many, many long hours in public emergency departments Um, with my children, I I saw an opportunity to perhaps create a private alternative. I teamed up with, as you do with with any business that comes down to the people, I teamed up with my best friend who was an emergency physician and we we built a business from the ground up, which is now um, the largest operator of emergency departments or private emergency departments in Australia. Wow. So essentially you saw a bit of a problem, there was a gap and you solved that problem is how the business came about. Absolutely. And I, and I think the key around that, I had no expertise, but I knew I knew the problem from a consumer perspective. And then it was about putting the pieces and the people together. So Josh, is that how you start the building blocks and the process of finding an investment is you identify the problem and the issue and the challenge and you build it up from there? Like we'd love to know your thinking process around the whole investment thesis. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's two things. There's, there's obviously the investment case needs to stack up, but the, the business ideally needs to, needs to have the building blocks that make it sustainable long term. And I think family office investing lends itself to really thinking long term. Um, one of my biggest frustrations with the, the institutional sort of um, mindset is that you tend to get in this, this um, 90 day rolling, reviewing type agenda or platform uh, analysing businesses and um, businesses or do not operate that way. There are, they tend to be underneath the surface, somewhat chaotic, they're messy, there's human emotions involved. Ideally, from our perspective as investors, I, we don't go out there trying to start up businesses. That was a bit of a unique opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to come in perhaps when they're at a particular growth that they're perhaps looking for a capital partner to assist them on the next their next stage um, and and we can help help implement that strategy that they're that perhaps having some you know confronting conversations at a family boardroom around and they're just looking for a third party to come in and perhaps push them gently down down the right 
the right gully. Yeah, that gentle push is definitely needed, particularly when it comes to a family operational business. So I guess this sounds like a bit of your um, differentiational point of view, you know, from other asset managers out there, because it is a really crowded space. So talk us through more about, you know, you've identified the potential opportunity, you've got the business and the investment case, but how do you really differ from traditional asset managers, would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, and you're right. Crowded's crowded's the the right word. Um, there's lots of capital out there, and, and for a lot of time, and we've been in that position. We've sold businesses as founders. Um, capital is not the only thing they're looking for. They're looking for something more, and they and they actually just want someone to listen to them. And, and sometimes a traditional PE, and I've got an absolute lot of respect for them. They'll come in with a very much a roadmap that's on their terms, and just perhaps that that willingness to step back, listen appreciate what it's like to be in their shoes um, but also come from an angle that's perhaps different because we've invested in listed companies as well so we we somewhat cross over that that investor and operator gap and I think some sometimes investors and we get we fall into this habit as well you tend to look at a business through through a spreadsheet and they aren't linear they have ups and downs they have problems people don't get along at times family dynamics can be difficult so it's it's somewhat part psychological the role is can be a bit of a counselor at times but i think that ability to just see the investment opportunity for the best use of capital whether it's a private business whether it's a listed company i think is probably our key differentiator Oh, the human factor. That's, that is very interesting. So you've actually kind of led us into another great question for you. So could you share an example of a successful investment or investment strategy that your family office has pursued and what made it successful? Yeah, probably, probably the recency bias, but I'll talk to our most recent private investment is in a business called Pure, which is a, a somewhat large waste management company. It plays in a very particular niche that we've been attracted to for a long time, but just could not find the opportunity in the listed market. So we looked um, extensively. Obviously, there's some really large listed waste management companies, some of which in Australia, some of which are in the US, and we just couldn't quite find the exact opportunity we're looking for for valuation reasons or they weren't quite in the area we wanted to focus in on. Um, so that lent us to just getting to know the industry, all the players. We met with lots and lots of different people, and eventually an opportunity sort of landed in our in our lap. Where one of the founders of the company actually approached us and asked if we'd be interested in investing because they wanted to go go on a bit of a growth journey and a bit of a consolidation of the particular niche they play in. Um, and to this point, it's early days. I think we've been in the business for two years. We have a view that. We're happy to be there for 10 years or, or more as long as the family needs us. So, yeah, we're two years into an early journey, but the, the business has, has grown significantly. We continue to acquire and consolidate the market, and that's that's a recent example. Really, that's great. So it's really kind of a blue chip uh, area, um, and you're, the founders are staying on, so the family is actually staying on, and you're essentially co-investing and growing with them. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably lends itself to family offices and the way they invest. We tend to do things in partnerships. It's not it's not our way or the highway. Um, we I think we represent maybe 18% of that company. We invested within we invested with another family office separately as well as the family themselves. So 
Um, we, we only speak for, for one seat on the board. So go back to that human element. It's about and just ensuring you've got value alignment from, from the get-go. And it's all about values, values, values to us. Um, it's, it's, it's more about the who than the what. Because at some point in time, something's going to go wrong in any business. You're going to, we call it, you, you have to be, get in the trenches with people. And if you're in the trenches, you want to make sure that you've got the right people alongside you. So, Speaking of the trenches, it's, it's a really common theme we've found when we speak to family officers that the same family office connections will often co-invest alongside each other. So you sort of move and ebbs and flows, right? So mm. that leads us to the thought process of, I guess, what typical type of investment opportunity to family offices together or singly you know go into have you got any other examples of sectors or assets you did touch on you know you're looking for something that's not listed so what else is I guess on your table at the moment yeah we always I think I think the common thing is that the assumption is that all family offices are the same they're all very very different they all have very they the one common thing is that they probably have longevity in mind the common thing is they're always thinking intergenerationally you know I think that's something that we really buy into, that it just forces you to think longer. When you're thinking about handing an asset or you know, a passive investment company to the next generation, you're just forced to think differently. So I think it lends to more longer-term sustainable business profiles, and we call them, I mean, COVID probably brought this to light, but we call them essential services. We want things that are going to turn up every single day um, they're less prone to disruption. Yep. We, we obviously, we've, we've done a number of things in healthcare. We like things like waste management, you know, and, and a lot of family offices do a lot of property for that exact reason. We, we tend not to do a lot of property, but yeah, we're, we're looking at a number of things. Another, another sort of large co-investment with a big institution on the healthcare side at the moment, we're looking for the first time at, at office towers. We've never, never done a lot of property before, but we think Try to think again long term. Look beyond the current work from home environment. Trying to assess the risk around office and whether that's potentially an opportunity. Just given prices are, are probably depressed and below replacement cost at the moment, that's probably the the first few examples that jumped to my head. They're great. I love those investable ideas and thematics. What about logistics? What are your thoughts there? Because I think that's that's like a multi-decade play, right, that we're all seeing everyone getting more to efficiency and supply chain issues. You know, what opportunity are you seeing here in Australia for logistics? Yeah, again, um, COVID again probably brought that sector to light and the, the essential nature of it. We tend to even in the, let's bring it back to waste management. You know, there's there's two components of waste management. There's the facilities and there's logistics around the transportation of those things that need to be serviced within the waste management facility. We like more the facility because we think the barriers to entry are higher. So yeah, logistics is interesting. It's it's just again go back to from our perspective, what's our what's our circle of competence? Do we have the ability to assess the opportunity in-house or do we have the right partner to work with? Our view is we are open-minded. We, we let the opportunities come to us and some sometimes those opportunities will be contrarian like office. Sometimes there'll be things that are definitely probably more more obvious. But yeah, we're, we're, we tend to be open-minded and let the opportunities come to us. Yeah, and I think what's actually really interesting with all of the different businesses that you've listed is they're not really in those kind of 
fad, FOMO, overhyped, yeah. Um, yeah. AI, crypto, that kind of thing. They're pretty like stock standard, blue chip. You could actually say kind of boring, right? They're not that exciting and sexy, um, but they're obviously businesses that have stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time. Now, you did mention, Josh, earlier that COVID was one of the biggest challenges for businesses. Mm. So what are some unique advantages and challenges associated with private investments? And how does Alviac navigate these? I think the biggest challenge for private investing is now, and you probably reference it's a bit of FOMO. I think everyone wants to be exposed to private investments and and whether they're coming at it for the right reasons. Um, we, we're not sure. Ten years ago, you had there was a massive opportunity to bring capital together to get things at better pricing because there weren't so many players in the space. So um, private private investing has always intrigued us. I just I'm conscious that pricing is getting more difficult, so you you have to come at it from a different angle. You've got to probably come at it from an area of expertise. What can you bring the, to the table to truly value add around the investment? And you've got to be perhaps be comfortable being there for longer. Whereas ten years ago, you could probably buy things at a cheaper multiple, and and within three years, you could sell it at a better multiple into the listed markets or into another private player. That that's a lot more difficult these days. Um, yeah, in terms of your boring comment, up more than comfortable with boring. Boring's great. Um, <laughs> boring means it's probably it's probably going to be there in five to ten years, and and that's our first question we ask. Like, if we turned everything off, is this business going to is it going to still still be there in its current form in ten years? That's that's tend to be where tends to be where we start. Josh, just one quick thing, if I can. Um, you've made me think of something in terms of the challenges. So obviously, one moment, like you mentioned, is how do you take the business to the next level? And a decade ago, um, some competitors and peers would look for, you know, liquidity, right? We're in the listed space day to day, and it's it's pretty shut. It's pretty quiet. So, do you see in the near term, mm-hmm. um, or do you have a forecast on? on maybe private businesses staying private for longer? Mm. You know, what's your opinion on the IPO market right now? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think a couple of our businesses, we're, you know, we're probably closer to a liquidity event. Um, it's just far easier to go down the, the private route. There, there's just, there's a lot of capital that is looking for really good assets. You know, so a lot of businesses don't want to declare their margins and declare their story to the world. They're very comfortable sitting in a private market Without having to, you know, meet with fund managers every few weeks, they want to keep their eye on the prize and the business itself. Yeah, report to the ASX. Yeah, exactly. And listed markets just can be really distracting. So it, it comes with a whole new layer of costs, corporate costs, to deal with those distractions, obviously. And and there's just there is a sheer volume of capital out there, which which means there's there's far more routes to taking the business to the next stage than it used to be. Yeah, and I often hear the quote that the best time to start a business and be innovative is in tough economic times, which is undoubtedly where we are globally. Mm. So, you know, we might see some really interesting businesses come through, I think, in the next decade. So watch watch your space. I hope so. I mean, I'd hope so. I'd love to see more supply on the listed side. And I, and I think, again, when we, when we look at any opportunity, it's it's listed or unlisted, we're agnostic. So we're hopeful in the next two years that things start to shift and things come back to listed markets. 
Yeah, so are we. Now, in a moment, we're going to explore the process behind the family office investment mindset, hear Josh's thoughts on the current state of the economy and markets, plus a lot more investable ideas. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And we're back. Josh, you mentioned some really good examples of successful investments today. Before we kind of get more into opportunities that you're seeing in both the public and private sector and talking more about your fund, can we just take a moment to just go through the due diligence process that your family office endeavours? Because it is, I'm going to imagine, quite a complex structure. So what do you look out for and, and walk us through that? From a due diligence perspective, we're no, we're no different to traditional private capital. We, we obviously do a lot of commercial due diligence before we get to the next stage, confirming those, the numbers and the data. But um, I think the main thing is, again, when we approach any private investment, we, we are sitting down with the founders with our true partner hat on, assessing their, their pain points and trying to solve them up front. And then we do a lot of work around what's the strategy, what's the growth plan, how we're going to execute, what do we need. And I think just having being the third party in the room allows them the flexibility to probably say things they haven't been able to say. It's much harder to have those conversations when you're talking to mum, dad, sister, brother, cousin. So, yeah, it was a lot lot more work up front. And the other thing is we, we come at it from all angles. So we will bring in our listed team will bring in the CEO of Elvia who comes at it from a different angle around systems. I think that's a, that's a, a big advantage for us. And definitely, um, exactly like you said, dream team all come in and everyone gets on the same level on the same page for the business day one. Just want to flesh out that a bit more with you, Josh, if we can. Of course. Have you got any secret numbers, any metrics, you know, like debt to equity ratio, growth numbers, like is there anything in your toolkit that you go, this is exciting or you just look at everything? Growth numbers, yeah. No, yeah, there's no rule of 40s or <laughs> anything like that. But we do, um, we use the same model we use for listed companies. Mm-hmm. So, again, we it's, it's, it's all about quality first and then trying to get the valuation right. Um, so, yeah, I think it, um, I don't want to go listed markets but – and we la- last one of the last things we invested in, we we watched for nine hundred days um, until the price point came to it came to us where we thought there was a margin of safety. But we look at the same quality criteria. Obviously, returns on capital very important to us, especially if you're going to be in a business long term. You want to ensure that they're thinking about how they deploy capital. You don't want a lot of debt. 
you want to make sure that there's margin there for error. And I mean, operationally, you want to see some reasonable margins. But of a lot of it is when it comes to a private market, it's about ensuring that people are the right people um, because you can you can be cute with numbers. So a lot of that comes down to getting the people right. Yeah. So it seems, you know, that you really are not only patient capital and patient investors, but you're patient when getting into certain investments and you're ready to wait rather than getting that FOMO like we spoke about earlier. Now, in the context of the current economic and market conditions, I mean, what are some trends or strategies that Alvia is currently focused on? I think it's a dip, it's a really it's one of the most complex markets I think I've ever had to deal with um, for all asset classes. And I think a lot of it, it would just really not dumb it down, but bring it back to the basics. It just comes down to interest rates and and the discount rate. You can get US bonds now at 5%. That was 1% not very long ago. So so that that's creating a whole, a whole lot of havoc under the surface, I think, for all investors, especially if you're perhaps sitting on large e-liquid positions and you've been forced into illiquid positions because bonds had nothing to offer not that long ago. It changes the way you think about your asset allocation. So I think that's that's a big thing. I think it's the biggest thing that we think about, we're thinking about in here, is what does our portfolio look like in a 5% environment versus a 1% environment not that long ago. We look at the US and especially listed markets and we think the top end of the US is, is actually quite unattractive. But then what do you do with some of those long-standing US positions that a lot of people have, where do you repatriate that capital to? What are the best uses for it, especially with the currency where it is today, and especially if you're an Australian family office or any investor? They're the two main things. And I think a lot of of investors have felt very comfortable owning US technology companies for a long time now, and it's going to be a big shift for them to think about European markets, UK markets, Japanese markets, or just more boring, as you said, blue chip type businesses that aren't growing at incredible top line rates. They're they're growing more consistently with GDP plus one or two. That's they're the main things we're thinking about inside the business. Yeah, and we've actually had quite a few um, global managers on that have really said similar things, that they're looking outside the top end of the US, looking at more, there's a lot of value and a lot of opportunity in that small to mid-cap space that has really been hammered in the markets over the last few years. That's a really interesting point that you made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, if you've got the ability to assess things that are smaller uh, and the risk around that, then I think there's, there's significant opportunities there. So you're being very humble, which I love as a, as a portfolio and <laughs> asset and wealth manager, right? But we love numbers. So for our audience's perspective, you also have a, a fund for investors who can allocate capital up to $250,000 or more. So steep hurdle, but that's pretty traditional and normal for family office wealth. And the numbers, guys, are really impressive. So 50%, 50.60 to be exact since inception. And on an annualized basis, it's 14.30 per annum since inception. So well done to you and the team. They're really, really, really good numbers. So now you've kind of touched on and we flirted around opportunities. You're not into the top US equities, which is interesting to me to hear that. So if, we, if I'm just going to do a quick round of different asset classes, could you just run off Positive, negative, you know, maybe some ideas that you're liking in the space that was in within your fund. So you mentioned listed equities. Where else then if it's not the top US? Yeah, I think I, if, even if it's not the top US, it's it's areas of the US that we're not talking about. 
we tend to look at the portfolio not so much in sectors, more in what roles they play in the portfolio. So we think about asset value, we think about one-off sort of cyclical opportunities, we think about compounders as everyone does. We'd ideally the portfolio would be 100% compounders, but sometimes the pricing doesn't work to allow for a reasonable return. We think about income. Everyone likes to see some income flowing through their portfolio, and we think about hedging. So we do own some of the US. I think two of our probably larger positions are in the US, but they're, they're, they're probably fairly unloved. In I think our two largest positions right now are PayPal and Disney. I cannot believe you've mentioned those companies because they're uh, my two that I'm still loving the business fundamentally, but the share price is shocking. It's horrible. Convince me why I should keep staying in them then. I mean, I don't. I won't go into the boring detail around PayPal, but honestly, um, that's a cash flow machine. Yep. Um, they're buying back huge quantums of of their registry themselves. There's a lot to. There's a lots of uncertainty at, with PayPal and new management and and strategy. Fundamentally, the franchise is still strong, mm-hmm. and the valuation gives it an opportunity to. To, to bridge that gap between risk and uncertainty. Disney, I mean, it's an incredibly long, enduring franchise. I've just come back from Disney in France um, with my children, and I certainly can attest for the fact that the volumes of people are still flooding through that component of the business. So I think the parks business is an incredible business. Yep. Yeah, they've made some mistakes. They've brought back the old head in Bob Iger to try and steady the ship. I think he can. There's a lot of cost out opportunity in the business. They've been they've been forced to play the game alongside Netflix on the direct to consumer. Um, I think there's an opportunity there to just just monetize that brand. And I think you know if I had to close my eyes for ten years, I'd be pretty comfortable with Disney at today's prices. Yeah, me too. I agree. So those two are examples. You know, outside of the top loved, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of you mentioned hedging and protecting, so. Walk us through your shorts if you can. What can you tell us there? Yeah, we don't do do traditional shorting or we haven't at this stage. We, we will at some point, but it has, to, again, I've learnt my lesson. I've got lots of scar tissue from shorting and, yeah, the, the scars are real and raw. We tend to be value biased, so we tend if we're going to short, we, we tend to get caught with shorts on a value basis and that's, that's where I've learnt my lessons. If we're going to short, it has to be a very clear fraud or, and and there has to be obvious catalysts to 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 get that um, that news out there. So we hedge in different ways. We hedge using gold at the moment. We've taken a position in long duration US bonds, with the view that you know I'm not I'm not an interest rate specialist, but I, I have a view that we have a view as a team that we're getting closer to the end that comes to rates. And at some point in time, you know, especially when there's a bit of geopolitical risk that that US Treasuries will play a safe haven role at some point in time. So they're they're our two main hedging positions at the moment. Okay. So with your listed positions, right, you've only got 25 in the family office fund at the moment. Uh, Can you tell us about a company that you may have recently added to that 25? Because it's quite a, you know, a high conviction list. What have you recently added and why? It's good. That's a good question. Most recent addition, again, on that office view, it's a local local REIT, Centura office. We're prepared to be deeply contrarian on office in Australia. We think there's, if you're prepared to do the work on the assets and we have, that there is value emerging there. And I think I think on our own estimation, it's probably trading probably 30% to 40% below its true value 
with an, an implied capitalization rate around 11%, with a 11% free cash yield. We think that's pretty attractive, good income buttress with potential for some capital upside over time if you're patient, and we are. Beyond that, I think we've been adding a fair bit to some of our luxury names. So we're a big believer in that luxury is enduring. Um, we don't own LVMH. We own the number, probably the number two in Caring, which owns some some very prominent brands. We think the wealthier continue to get wealthy. Um, and, and sadly, you're seeing a lot of populism around that, but the 1% uh, genuinely have taken advantage of a zero interest rate environment and are probably wealthier than they ever have been and then would continue to embrace brands. We think they're unloved. So that's probably the, the two that I would suggest. That's really interesting. And I, I do think it's uh, particularly interesting that you mentioned uh, the office and commercial space again. So essentially, whenever anyone else is being, I guess, fearful, uh, you've taken the view that this is a huge opportunity and when you actually want to invest. Uh, it kind of sounds like the Warren Buffett uh, theory, uh, which is also interesting as you hold Berkshire Hathaway in your top listed. So that makes a lot of sense, a lot of synergies there. Now, you did mention earlier in this previous question that you like to break your portfolio down into different kind of portfolio holdings. So you've got asset value play, cyclical opportunities, long-term compounders, income buttresses, and portfolio hedges. It'd be great to actually go through that list of five and your particular, I guess, favourite holding in the family office fund. So the first one, what's your asset value play? I'll probably go back to Centura again. We also own Unibar Westfield. I think they're both deeply unloved. Um, again, when you with an asset value play, you start with the balance sheet and we try and work backwards from that and, and take a view that if you liquidated the assets today, what would you get in the hand tomorrow? Um, and we think there's... There's a reasonable or a very decent margin on both of those entities. They're not they're not without risk, and we monitor them closely. Um, Unibail is going through a, a massive sell down of assets, so we're watching that process very very closely. Um, but it's definitely deeply discounted on a balance sheet basis. I think for both those, it's just there is a lot of work involved in assessing those portfolios, and a lot of people just put them in the in the too hard basket, which I can understand. But given we run a concentrated portfolio, we have the ability to to do that, do that work. And the expertise. All right, what about the cyclical opportunities in the fund? Yeah, these are the ones that keep us awake at night. Um, <laughs> cyclicals, you can make a lot of money in cyclicals. You can also lose a lot of money. Um, so, again, this is these are, these are things, obviously, they can be commodity linked. They can be linked to other cyclical components of the economy. The one right now that we've held for a long time is, is Cameco. It's the... It's the number two uranium producer in the world. We think uranium is going to play a, a larger part of the energy transition. We've been patient for this for five years. It's starting to starting to get buy-in politically as a commodity. Um, yeah, that's that's a cyclical one. You know, our, our rule inside is just don't never fall in love with the cyclical. They can pretend to be compounders, and <laughs> you can get found out. That's a good rule. But we a hundred percent, actually a thousand percent, agree with you with regards to the uranium uh, in future-facing commodities and the decarbonisation goals that need to be met. So tick, 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 tick. There. Uh, what about the long-term compounders? Yeah, I think at, we we set a. A benchmark that we want this at least to be 40% of the portfolio at a minimum. Ideally, 
you know, in a, in a crisis, you talk about Warren Buffett before, he was willing to lean into a crisis and take advantage. We would ideally get to 80% of compounders because these are things that work for you while you're asleep. Um, they return capital, they allocate capital really well. Berkshire is a great example of a long-term compounder. Um, his returns or their returns internally are exceptional. Um, they're leading franchises in their respective industries and their ability to generate returns on returns and naturally compound you is how we, uh, naturally compound for you, I should say, is how we think about them. We try to find ones that are unappreciated. So we're trying to find a franchise that perhaps isn't quite as well known, that flies somewhat under the radar, but has all the characteristics of a compounder. We uh, Probably the one that springs to mind is Garmin. You would all know Garmin and obviously where it, it started it as a, um, a GPS device in a car. It's pivoted multiple times now. It's now a very dominant fitness brand, with an incredible product on the watch front. It still plays in it's got multi-divisions. Its returns on a capital are exceptional. It has a, a founder with a, a still a very large stake in the, in the business. It has no debt. It has all those things that give it a sense of durability. That's probably the one I would refer to. Yeah, so we've got the long-term compounders. So that's kind of your st- slow and steady, stable part of the portfolio. Uh, and you've got a good thesis behind uh, Garmin in there. I like the term income buttresses. So... What do you have in here? Yeah, interesting. Um, we just sold one, actually. Um, but, yeah, th- I mean, everyone likes to see a steady stream of income in their portfolio. It's not to say that's the first thing we focus on. We'd, my preference is for a growing dividend opposed to a mature business that's just paying all its capital out to appease shareholders. That's not where we start. But we think there's there's a certain aspect of the portfolio that should be dedicated to boring income generating utility type businesses that turn up for you aren't incredibly indebted act as a defensive role within a portfolio i don't want to refer to centuria because it's probably i've spoken about it plenty of times um we, we i'll probably talk to the type of thing so we we just sold a business called magellan midstream which and we actually didn't want to sell it it got taken over in the us but basically it was a it was a pipeline business in the us that had a, a sort of like a toll road tariff pricing mechanism, meaning it was very uh, a very good defence against inflation, paying a sort of nine to ten percent yield. Certainly not growing particularly fast, but again, it was in an area that the market was just not interested in looking at when U.S. tech stocks were quadrupling over that period, skyrocketing. <laughs> yeah, and sadly, sadly, we bought it bought it well, and it got taken away from us. But that that's a that's an example of the types of things we look for. I love that analogy and that example. So the final um, bucket is portfolio hedges, but we've already kind of mentioned and gone into what you're doing there. So let me then end the conversation with this question. Uh, you, can, you can have a moment to think about it. It's a big one, ready? <laughs> if you could be a CEO for 10 years or more, because you, you think long-term of any company, listed or private, obviously not your own business, what would it be and why? Oh, so I can't use my own business. That's a shame. Um, Unfortun- unfortunately not. No. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to Disney. Um, it's That would be a big responsibility and that's a very complicated business. That's massive, yeah. But I do think there's an incredible enduring brand protection around that business. Not that I would have the capability to execute on the strategy there, but 
I do believe uh, at least my job would be protected by the brand and I couldn't make too many mistakes. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, ab- absolutely incredible content that could be probably monetized in different ways and carefully and I'd probably still manage. I'd manage to get through the first three years anyway. That's it. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for joining us today on Talk Money to Me. We've really, really enjoyed picking your brain. Uh, so we'll see you soon. Awesome. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks. Wow, Felicity, I really enjoyed the insights that Josh offered up in both the private sector and the public sector. Yes, so did I. I really like to get into his family office mindset Mm. of investment. And I think that's very valuable for our listeners to hear. Yeah, 100%. And I really, really, really love for me, cherry on top was his choice of Disney being CEO. Love that. (laughs) Now, if everyone listening really enjoyed this episode and what Josh was speaking about, uh, you can find out more about their family office fund by heading to alviapartners.com.au. Now, I know I said the minimum was 250000 but that's if you go directly. If you're interested in learning more about the fund and how it could fit into your portfolio, the minimum is $50,000 on platform. Now, we hope you enjoyed today's show. We definitely did. Just a quick reminder before we say goodbye and sayonara, please remember Although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Showing Partners, as always, today our discussion does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, you should seek your own professional advice or reach out to us, for example, before you make your investment decisions. Everything is based on the facts known at the time of recording with Josh doing this interview, which is the 17th of October, 2023. And please make sure you follow us on at Talk Money to Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And remember, if you've got any questions or you want to see how this could potentially fit into your portfolio, you can contact us, tmtm at equitymates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.